So I want to talk tonight about both equanimity and faith, which in my mind actually are quite connected. I know as a writer, um, I often get the feedback that themes, things might seem connected to me that don't seem connected to anybody else. So I'll start with equanimity. So you're filled with equanimity by the time I make some kind of segue into faith, <laughs> which may or may not have any connection to anything else I said before. So we'll see. <clears throat> you know, so as we've been talking, as I know Mark also spoke about this afternoon, equanimity is known as the balance of mind. It's uh, the kind of balance that takes us to a whole other place because equanimity is the voice of wisdom it's the articulation of wisdom it's the way wisdom is made known through our actions through our choices through our decisions it means balance it doesn't mean indifference or callousness or coldness or not caring Sometimes, you know, as I said the other night, I really think of it as peace. Sometimes, very often, actually, I think of it as a kind of spaciousness. So it's opening to something bigger than what we might find right in front of us. And because it is the articulation of wisdom, the power of equanimity comes from the truthfulness of that from seeing things as they actually are. So one of the main ways of deepening equanimity is actually mindfulness. It's an essential ingredient to the quality of mindfulness. And one way of seeing it is through this model. It's uh, the way the Buddha described all of our experience. And <clears throat> he said that every moment we experience the world in one of six ways seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, and uh, this sixth sense, which is known as the mind door. So the sixth, sixth sense is not like paranormal. Uh, it's within the context of the ordinary ways we perceive. So that sixth sense is um, imagery, thinking, emotion, and so on. And he said, every single moment we experience the world in one of six ways, one of these six ways. And in every moment of hearing a sound or seeing a sight, we have a, a felt sense. There's a feeling tone of that experience being pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Now that aspect of the experience we wouldn't say is absolute or uh, inevitable or um, unchanging because it's quite conditioned. You know, we may uh, feel a, a shooting pain through our shoulder and that would ordinarily be experienced as quite unpleasant, but maybe our shoulder's been totally numb for six months and we get this shooting pain which we see as, uh, we interpret as, oh, it's coming back to life, you know? And there's actually a kind of pleasure in that painful experience. So it's not absolute, 
But nonetheless, for a whole variety of different reasons, we feel each moment as pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. And this doesn't change through the deepening of mindfulness, of mindful awareness. Sometimes people think that if you really progress in meditation, it will all kind of morph into this gray blob and there won't be any more pleasure, but there won't be any more pain. So that's okay. And sometimes people long for that. You know, they, they can't wait for the day that uh, all kind of feeling disappears. And other people, of course, dread it, but it's not what happens anyway, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> so we have each moment's experience felt by us to be pleasant, painful, and neutral. And then the Buddha went on to say, we are very conditioned. When that experience is pleasant, to want to hold it, to possess it, to own it, to keep it, to be in control of it, to keep it from changing. And when that experience is unpleasant, we are very conditioned, whether it's you know an emotion or a sound or whatever it is, we're quite conditioned to disliking it, wanting to push it away or being afraid of it, recoiling from it, being angry about it, being ashamed of it, uh, blaming ourselves for not having been able to stop it. And when that experience is just kind of neutral, you know, in between, not very strikingly pleasant or unpleasant, we tend to go to sleep. You know, that's kind of the signal. Tune out, nothing happening here, you know, or not enough happening here, it's not intense enough. Let's just disconnect. And what the Buddha said was that in contrast to that, we can experience the pleasure of something fully completely, but without that extra thing of trying to grasp it and hold it and keep it. We can experience the pain of an experience fully and wholeheartedly and open-heartedly. Without all those layers, we might add on to it. And we can actually wake up and be connected to our ordinary, perhaps repetitive and quite neutral experience. And that's mindfulness. Mindfulness is the ability to be with the pleasure and the pain and the neutrality in a very different way. And what makes it different is that ingredient of equanimity. It's the balance. It's not being overcome by that tendency to cling or condemn <clears throat> our experience or just shut down. So we have this sense of spaciousness, of real presence with whatever may come our way. So it's, when we say mindfulness, sometimes it, it sounds like just knowing what's going on. Like I know I'm hearing a sound, I know I'm holding a teacup, something like that. But really it means so much more because mindfulness is actually a relational quality. It's how we're knowing in that moment that makes it so radical, actually. So it's not just about living kind of a nicer life because we actually show up for it. But it is radical because we are relating very, very differently than that whole wealth of conditioning might have us <clears throat> relate. And so we see the world much more clearly. We see ourselves much more clearly. It's because of the equanimity within that, that mindfulness lays the foundation for that kind of clear seeing or insight. Because after all, if you know, something comes up in our experience and we're just struggling against it. 
all of the time, there's not going to be a lot of learning. And at the same time, if we're swept up, if we're consumed by what comes up, if we're defined by what comes up, there's also not going to be a lot of learning. So we need that kind of balance to establish this very, very different kind of relationship. So we can actually have all kinds of, of different insights and understandings about everything that comes our way. And then, of course, there's equanimity in the context of the Brahma Viharas. When I did go to Burma in 1985 to do, it was actually all four of these practices over the course of, of three months. Still, like I'm sure many of you expressed this today, you know, I would think, well, yeah, I can get the first three. There's, there's a consonance, you know, emotionally with the first three of loving kindness and compassion and sympathetic joy. But that equanimity thing, you know, it seems really kind of bland and flat. And, you know, what's that about? And in this system of practices, I think I mentioned, unlike some other systems where equanimity comes first, equanimity does tend to come at the end, even though uh, it is also kind of a secret ingredient threaded throughout those other things, uh, those other qualities. And yet, you know, when I actually was practicing it, there was such a sense of space that came, of spaciousness, that I could understand how, not through my mental projections, but through the actual experience, uh, it was very, very important to understand and be able to abide in the deepening of the state of equanimity. So what's the space that's produced by wisdom? It's not cold, it's not distant, um, it's not hardened, it's not uncaring, but it's very, very open. Uh, I think of this example sometimes. I have a goddaughter who's <clears throat> just turned 12, actually, um, the other day. And when she was maybe like four, something like that, she said to her mother, uh, you know, Sharon is my godmother. And her mother said, well, you know, you have to ask. So they asked me and I said, oh, yeah, you know, I would love that. That would be, <clears throat> you know, that would be a great honor. I would love that. And so um, through the years, we, you know, we grew closer and developed a relationship. And then when she was maybe, oh, eight, something like that, she started sending me emails through her mother. And this was the first email. I've been thinking about things, and I wonder if you can help me out. Where did the universe come from? <laughs> Where did love come from? Where did space come from? And do love and space have anything to do with one another? Please tell me everything you know. So I said, oh my God, you know, what am I gonna do? But very fortunately, there is a quotation from the Buddha which talks about love and space. He said, um, develop a mind so filled with love it resembles space which cannot be painted, cannot be marred, cannot be ruined. Develop a mind so filled with love it resembles space. 
which cannot be painted, cannot be marred, cannot be ruined. So if somebody was standing here in the middle of this room just throwing paint around in the air, there's nowhere in this space where the paint is going to land. So in the end, it's not going to matter if it was a very well-chosen color or a really garish mistake. The space isn't going to be ruined by that. So I wrote some form of that to her, and I said, you know, the Buddha said this about love and space. And I said, it's kind of like this. Let's say someone at school says something that really hurts your feelings. One way of relating to it is to have your, your heart be really, really, really big, like the sky. And sure, you know, you're hurt, and, and that's real, and you feel that, but your heart's also so open, you know? And that's different than maybe when you feel like a sponge. Like every mean thing someone says just kind of comes into you, and it fills you, and it fills like all of you, and you get all soggy and yucky and whatever I wrote, something like that. No, so I sent that off to her, and then I didn't hear back. <laughs> and then maybe like a month later, her mother said to me that uh, my goddaughter got into an argument with her little sister. And after that, she was roaming around the house muttering, I am like the sky. I am not a sponge. <laughs> I am like the sky. I am not a sponge. And I've never had any children, so I wasn't too sure about that. But her mother was delighted. She felt like, yeah, she's working it, you know. So what about those times we get to be like a sponge? You know, we absorb the sense of failure, of hurtfulness. It fills us. It overcomes us. And what about the contrast where, yes, that experience is real. We're not trying to pretend it's not happening, but we're holding it in a big, 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 big space. That's different. Or as, uh, to paraphrase the Buddha, when he said, you know, if you take a teaspoonful of salt and you put it in, say, just a small glass full of water, because the vessel, that which is holding the water, is just narrow, it's, it's quite small, the water in there is going to be very deeply impacted by that salt. Whereas if you take that same teaspoonful of salt, or let's say even a truckload full of salt, and you put it in a pond full of fresh water, there's not going to have the same impact. There just isn't going to be the same impact. Because what is receiving the salt is so big. It's so immense. It's so vast. It's so expansive that it's not going to have the same effect. You know, the salt is comparable to all those things we get that are unpleasant. We don't like them. We're disappointed. We're hurt. And sometimes we cannot do anything about that. And yet we can always do something about that which is receiving it. Always, always. And so that's our work. It's not to say that what happens is irrelevant. It's quite relevant. And to the degree we can make changes, you know, or effective change, we do. But a lot of the time, it is not ours to control. And we need to look very carefully at how we are receiving in terms of 
the confinement, the tightness, the fixation, the overwhelm. How are we receiving what is happening? So that's about equanimity. It's about this kind of openness that comes from seeing things as they actually are. You know, sometimes in kind of conventional wisdom, we talk about, say, being afraid of the unknown. And that's kind of a thing people say, you know, we're afraid of the unknown. And maybe to some extent we are. But I was, I had this interesting experience not too long ago in sitting and looking at some fear that was arising inside of me. And I looked at it and I thought, I realized, wow, I'm not actually afraid of the unknown. I'm afraid because I think I do know and it's all bad and it's only going to get worse. That when I come to the place where I say, well, I don't know, it's like, okay, <laughs> I don't know. All of a sudden it all opens up. So what's that opening? That's that sense of equanimity. We don't know exactly, but we understand that there's a natural course of events. That we go up, that we go down, that life is intricate. It's not our fault that we have difficulty that we suffer, that we cannot, in fact, hold on to the highs, to the pleasure, because everything is changing all of the time. And we can be at peace with that. That doesn't mean apathetic. But all of those extra things about blaming ourselves and the futility of grasping and the ways that we, you know, we run after something thinking it will never change. We don't need to be perpetuating those habits. And then we have peace. And with that peace, because it's not inert, we also have clarity. And with that clarity, we have a chance of really making some efforts that are more intelligent about dealing with our situation. So the Buddha talked about what he called eight vicissitudes of pleasure and pain and gain and loss and praise and blame and fame and disrepute. It's pleasure and pain, gain and loss, praise and blame, fame and disrepute. And he said, this is the fabric of life. This is just what life is. It's not that anybody has only pleasure and no pain or only praise and no blame. Every day we go up and we go down, it's always changing. And it's not aberrant. I remember once I was, I was hiking with some friends in a um, state park in California, and we decided we were going to hike in for three days. And then on the fourth day, we were going to turn around and come back out along the same trail. So this was still the third day, and we were going in. And it turned out to be a day of many, many hours of very steady, unremitting downhill walking. And at one point, the person I was walking with and I, it was almost like we were struck by the simultaneous realization. And he turned around and he said to me, in a dualistic universe, downhill can only mean one thing. <laughs> and he was right. Because the next day when we turned around along the very same path, it was many, many, many hours of uphill walking. And that's not to say on every level it's a dualistic universe, because I don't want to imply that either. But on the level in which we know pleasure and pain and gain and loss and praise and blame, it is like that. 
And we can understand that it's always like that. I love to really consider um, the examples of praise and blame because that's a realm where, you know, the very same action, we do one thing and some people praise us and some people blame us. In the sense that some people like what we did, some people don't like what we did. And there is no such thing as executing the perfect action so that we only get praise, although we always think there is some way that we can manipulate the situation. You know, I, um, the first night here, talked about having the Buddha images here in the center and in the hall. And one of the days I was, uh, you know, seeing people, um, you know, somebody walked in and said, well, you know, I am kind of a little bit uncomfortable with the Buddha images here. And not two minutes later, somebody walked in and said, I'm so glad you have those Buddha images here. What do you do? Or, you know, in Asia, one of the things that's very true about Buddha statues is that uh, they're not considered works of art. They're rather more sacred objects because they remind us of something very essentially true about ourselves. And so you wouldn't see a Buddha image like, um, you know, how we have them sometimes shockingly in, you know, magazine ads, like a Buddha with a hat sort of rakishly perched on his head, you know, and an ashtray or something in front of him, a cigarette, you know. It's, it's very different, you know, it's very, very different. And, and uh, one of the customs, say, in a country like Burma, uh, with a, a Buddha statue is that you actually bow to it because, you know, and it's not some kind of servile, strange thing as we might take it to be, but, but it really is about paying respects to something inherently true, although perhaps hidden, about ourselves. Um, you know, and so it's just a, a culture of respect in that way. And so uh, there was one year here that one of the teachers uh, who'd actually just come back from uh, Thailand and was very moved by that. And he decided, you know, I feel like bowing to the Buddha, that Buddha over there. And he did that. Now he came into the hall, bowed to the Buddha, sat down, led a sitting, rang the bell. And by the time he got to the bulletin board, so what is that, 30 seconds? There were notes waiting for him. The first note he pulled off said, I was so delighted to see you bow to the Buddha. Because I myself have, you know, a strong interest in devotional practice, and that's a big part of my emotional makeup, and it meant a lot to me that you could express that part of yourself. And the next note said, I was appalled to see you bow to the Buddha, you know, because after all, that doesn't have any place here, and just like 30 seconds, you know, if that. And life is like that. You know, we do something of the heart because it means something to us. Some people react one way other people react another way. It's always going to be like that. You know, my favorite uh, illustration of that actually comes from the Buddhist time where um, it's said that a man came to the monastery one day to hear something of the Buddha's teaching. And the first person he came upon was a monk who'd taken a temporary vow of silence. So when this man asked, will you tell me something of what the Buddha teaches? 
monk didn't say anything, and the man got furious, and he stomped away. So the same man came back a second day and came upon another disciple of the Buddha's who was quite renowned not just for his meditative attainment, but for his very elaborate theoretical knowledge. And so when he was asked, he went into a very elaborate theoretical response. And the man got really furious and stomped away. So the same man came back a third day and came upon another disciple of the Buddha's, this monk named Ananda. And it said that Ananda, knowing what had happened on the first day and what had happened on the second day, was careful to say something, but not too much. And the man got really angry. And he said something like, how dare you treat such profound matters so sketchily? And he stomped away. So this group of people went off to see the Buddha and they said, oh, Lord Buddha, this is what happened on the first day. This is what happened on the second day. This is what happened on the third day. What do you have to say? And the Buddha said, there's always blame in this world. He said, if you say nothing, some people will blame you. If you say a lot, some people will blame you. If you say just a little bit, some people will blame you. There's always blame in this world. And I'm not trying to imply that we don't care. I mean, of course we care. But how much do we care? You know, are we utterly devastated over something we cannot control? Do we decry what we just did as though worthless because it does not receive universal praise as though anything would? The other story I so often tell about this has to do with when my first book came out, which was Loving Kindness. And every once in a while I'm somewhere where somebody um, asked me to sign like a very old, like the original hardcover version uh, from 1995. And you can tell from the blurbs that are on the back of that book that it really took me a very, very, very long time to write that book, um, which it did. And all my life I'd wanted to be a writer and I didn't think I could do it. And finally I was uh, trying to write the book and it took me forever and finally the book came out. And on the back, somebody said, um, we've waited a long time for this book. <laughs> and someone else said, um, in this long-awaited first book. <laughs> and then uh, one of my friends had written something like, Sharon Salzberg has finally given us the <laughs> results. So I made the publisher take out the finally, because I thought that was too much. So it took me a very long time to write the book. Uh, and soon after it came out, I was in California. Um, and I had lunch with somebody who said to me, oh, Sharon, uh, you wrote that book in such a way, it's just like being with you. It's like just having a conversation with you. And I thought, wow, what a fantastic thing to say. I mean, I don't think you could say a nicer thing to a writer. You know, it's so beautiful, a comment. And I was so jazzed by it that that night I was having dinner with a whole other group of people. And I brought it up. I brought up the comment. And someone at the dinner table said, well, that's not true. <laughs> she said, I'm reading the book. It doesn't sound anything like you. It's nothing like being with you. And I thought, OK. <laughs> you can be ecstatic at lunch and depressed at dinner. Or you can take a moment and reflect. It's the same book. They're talking about one book. And somebody took it in one way 
and another person took it in another way. Now, I would be completely lying if I said I didn't notice the difference or I didn't care. I mean, of course we do care. But how much do we care? So I'll go back to the model I started earlier in the retreat when I started talking about motivation or intention behind an action and then the um, skillfulness or unskillfulness of the action. You know, the motive is the, you could say the spark, it's the heart space that gives rise to an action in any moment. The skillfulness or unskillfulness of the action is really based on our best sense of what's appropriate, most sensitive to do, to say, uh, in a given context, in a given situation. So it, it's really, it's almost like our best guess of whether to say yes or no, you know, to come forward or really pull back. Whatever it might seem to us is really appropriate based on mindfulness, based on clarity, based on hopefully wisdom. And these two aspects of an action, first the motivation and then the skillfulness or unskillfulness are followed by a third, which is the immediate result. So maybe out of a beautiful motive, I decide to hand somebody, you know, that schedule. And I really think about it, you know, and I think, well, you know, maybe I will do it privately. You're the only one in this whole room who's getting this brand new schedule for tomorrow. And I want you to have it, you know, and yet I don't want to hurt everyone else. So I'm just going to take your side and do it privately. But, you know, maybe uh, just before I do that, you, you know, you cheated and you checked your cell phone messages and you just found out you won $10 million in the lottery and you could not care less about this piece of paper, you know. The last thing that's going to happen is that you're going to be here tomorrow afternoon. And so, <laughs> you know, I hand you this with all this like hope in my heart that I've given you this great gift and you're very disdainful and, and cold and you walk away. So what does that response mean about me? About my heart, about my generosity, about my gift, about my intention, about my care, about my sensitivity, nothing. And yet, if you think about those three aspects of an action, where do we what do we really count on for our sense of who we are and where our integrity is and whether we should be happy and whether we deserve to be alive or not? Ironically, it's in the arena that we actually can't control. You know, we continually can be more aware of our motivation. And we can transform that field of motivation and come from a better and better place. And we can continually learn new skills. We really can cultivate skills of communication and expression and action and so on. But we can't ever be in absolute control of how that action will be received. You, know, you can't really say to somebody, you know, something's going to happen at 10, 15 in the morning, and I want you to come into that room. I don't want you to have checked your cell phone messages. I don't want you to have had a conversation with anybody. 
I don't want you to check your email and I don't want you to think about anything. <laughs> you know, even if we could do the first three, which we try to do here, you know, you can't control that last. You can't say, I want you to come in with a completely blank mind so you can appropriately receive that which is going to happen. It's just not real. You know, because every moment of existence is this confluence of conditions coming together and coming apart. And so what we need is some equanimity around that. It doesn't mean indifference. We do care. But we're not like that sponge defining ourselves with all this variability. I'm good, I'm bad, I'm good, I'm bad, I'm good, I'm bad. It worked, it didn't work, I can't do anything. Oh, look, I had a success, you know, and just like, you know, just like constantly. We need some space or spaciousness with all of that, which doesn't mean we don't take it in, but it's different. Because our minds and our hearts are much more like that sky with all these many things coming and going and affecting us, but not devastating us or exalting us in this extremely temporary fashion. So equanimity, it said, allows loving kindness to have patience. So that in that motivational field of wanting to be there, to be present, to care, uh, as we wish happiness, for someone, it doesn't take on that extra edge of like, okay, I figured it out, here's your agenda, you know, and you know, I spent the week and I gave you the week and now, you know, you've got to kind of be happy by tomorrow because, you know, I do have other people and I have to move on and, you know, and it's just like, it's that extra thing we do. So it said that equanimity which is that spaciousness will allow loving kindness to actually be loving kindness and not its near enemy of attachment. And it said that uh, equanimity will endow compassion with courage because it's not easy to be with pain, to face suffering, which can be so tragic and not to be overwhelmed you know, to have some kind of big perspective. Because the other part of that immediate result, that third part, that third aspect of an action is the immediacy of things. You know, so many times we think the efforts we make to try to make a difference, to be of service, to be of help, need to bear fruit right now or they're not worth it. You know, and this is so much our, our cultural conditioning here. If it doesn't happen instantly, it's not worth it. It's ineffective. It's ineffectual. And we are too. But really, so much of what we do in truth is just like planting a seed. And we don't know. Often, right away. If it has borne fruit, and sometimes when we find out it's sometime later and it's very beautiful but it's later and so we have to remember that what we see in front of us is not necessarily the end of the story you know and that all of life is moving on in this 
uh, in these confluences, and we have just added something. And we don't know where it might end up or how. But we need to do that contribution. We need to make that contribution and also let go of some need for immediate results. And so we look at how equanimity actually affects compassion, not as we might think it would, you know, but how does it actually affect compassion? And if you look at, uh, you know, some of uh, the great beings on the world stage, like the Dalai Lama, you know, or um, Gandhi, or Aung San Suu Kyi, or uh, Burma, or these people, and you think, wow, it's not a short-term deal, is it, you know? Like, what happens if frustration rules the day? Doesn't really work, does it? We need some reservoir of something that is not so distraught, even as things are difficult, that can allow us to go on, that, not, that doesn't take the immediate result as so ultimate, that gives us kind of a big perspective. That's equanimity. Like when I was in India um, uh, almost two years ago, I think, when uh, uh, the Dalai Lama was going to give a, a set of teachings in New Delhi that I had been invited to. So I was going, and it was just then that things uh, in Tibet reached a whole new level of horrible. and. Um, there was, you know, was just uh, so much violence, and it was, uh, it was really, really awful. And I kept wondering, you know, is he going to cancel the teachings and uh, whatever? But which he didn't. And then I realized, well, why would he? You know, it's like it's not like he can go there um, and actually try to make a difference there. So I went to Delhi, and he appeared, and and everyone was so uh, intent on seeing him, the Dalai Lama, and seeing how was he? You know, like. How would it be to hear this kind of news and, you know, have to face it? And uh, so he walked into the room and he addressed that right away. And he said something like, um, my mind is filled with disturbed thoughts, but my heart is very steady. And I thought that was amazing, you know, both in the candor, like my mind is filled with disturbed thoughts. All the stuff is arising, but my heart is very steady. Underneath all of that, there is something that is like a touchstone that is about resilience. It's about being able to be there, to go on, not to be overcome by the immediate situation. And so that also is, is a flavor of equanimity and the way it affects compassion and our efforts through compassion. And it said that equanimity actually allows sympathetic joy to be um, relevant for more than a very select and usually very small group of beings who we kind of feel are on our team, you know? Like, it's okay if they're happy, but they over there, you know, that's something else. Um, because remember, equanimity is the voice of wisdom. So what does wisdom tell us? That no status is permanent. You know, so much of the jealousy and the envy comes from that feeling of like, oh, you have everything and you will forever. And I have nothing and I will forever. Or 
I should have been able to stop this sort of full flowering of happiness for you. You know, just as I should in compassion have been able to really ease your suffering through my dictum, through my will. In both cases, we have to recognize it's not our universe to control. That's how it actually is. And it doesn't mean we don't care, but we need to care with some kind of intelligence and awareness so that we're neither broken by the suffering nor confused by the situation of happiness in this world. So everything is happening in this really big space of equanimity. And so it's really a very beautiful quality, even though I think it has a bad name. Uh, that's why sometimes I do try to say peace instead of balance, which also is a little mediocre in my mind as a word. Um, you know, but of course, it's not the word that's most important. It's the experience, because then we know from within, even when we can't find the words, you know, we have that sense of what a gift that can be to, to develop the wisdom and to be able to see the world more clearly and to have the kind of spaciousness and peace that comes from that. And that's what happens with faith as well. OK, here's a segue. <laughs> So the word faith in the Buddhist tradition, um, it's the common translation for this word, sada, S-A-D-D-H-A, uh, from Pali, uh, which means to place one's heart, to offer one's heart. And in the tradition, um, as I would use the word, uh, faith is not a commodity. It's not something that we have or we don't have. And if we don't have enough or the right kind, then you know we're going to be condemned. But rather, it's an unfolding of the heart that has to do with connection. It's connecting to deeper strengths inside of ourselves. It's connecting to a bigger picture of life. So here, too, just like with equanimity, we see that the immediate circumstance is part of a bigger picture. We may not see the bigger picture, but we know it's there. That what's happening now is part of a stream of events. That what we do matters. We can't see, you know, always trace. Well, I said this, so you said that to that person, and then they did that, and then they, you know. But we get some kind of glimpse of that. So we have the sense of an interconnected universe so that we don't feel so cut off or alone, whether we're happy or sad, whether we're experiencing pleasure or pain, it feels like a, a picture of life that we are a part of, this fabric of life. And so that's the nature of faith. Um, it doesn't have to do with belief or dogma. Um, and in fact, in the evolution of faith, uh, it's much more to do with the sense of equanimity, which comes from, from understanding. Uh, so faith is actually kind of a map of faith in, in the Buddhist tradition, which starts with this state known as bright faith. And that's likened to maybe you're sitting in a, um, a dark enclosed room, the door's shut, you feel really confined, you feel imprisoned, 
and something happens so that the door swings open and you go, whoa. One of my favorite examples of that actually uh, comes from this time when I was in uh, Cleveland at a conference, Cleveland, Ohio, and uh, which is where the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is. And a friend and I went out one afternoon to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Uh, and we went to the Bruce Springsteen exhibit. And on the front of the glass of the Bruce Springsteen exhibit there was a letter he wrote upon the occasion of Bob Dylan's induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And in the letter, Bruce Springsteen was writing about the first time he ever heard Bob Dylan's music. And he doesn't, he doesn't really say how old he was, but he said he was riding in a car with his mother. And one of Bob Dylan's songs came over the car radio. That was the first time he'd ever heard his music. And Bruce Springsteen said it was like a giant boot came down and kicked open the door of my mind. And he said, and then my mother said, that man can't sing. <laughs> you know? So it's not that we all have the same reaction to the same experience, but it was exactly the same thing as you read in the text. It was like a giant boot came down and kicked open the door of my mind. Suddenly it's like a bigger world than I had even imagined in that little room. There's a sense of possibility. We don't know what's on the other side of the door, but it's open. And so in the Buddhist text, that state, bright faith, is likened to falling in love. It's an extraordinary state. Sometimes it happens because we meet a teacher or we read something or we hear some music or um, we see some art or we go to a sacred place, you know, a really extraordinary place. And it's like, whoa, the world is bigger than I had thought. And even though it's such an amazing feeling, um, it's really considered just the very, very beginning of a journey of faith. And it's also got some vulnerabilities. For one thing, you know, that sense of wonder, that sense of amazement, that sense of possibility isn't necessarily grounded in our own experience of something, but it's somewhat dependent on, say, this teacher or this person or whatever. And so uh, we can be kind of fickle. You know, we might meet one teacher with a certain presentation and worldview and charisma or whatever one day and we think wow you know I'm going to follow that way and then we meet another one another day and we think well it'll forget that guy you know I'm following this one you know and it's just like it's very uh, perhaps quite ungrounded in ourselves and even more of a problem is the possibility that we get so attached to that extraordinary feeling that we become afraid to ask questions to rock the boat to uh express concerns, to point out things we consider um, confusing or, or maybe not quite right, because we don't want to lose any kind of proximity to what seems the source of that extraordinary feeling. And so that's when what we call bright faith could degenerate into what is so commonly called blind faith. Whereas, um, at least in the Buddhist tradition, it is the very act of questioning and investigating and wondering, and one could almost say doubting, uh, that is the enriching of faith. You know, we start out with a sense of possibility, but then we need to question everything. 
Because ultimately, you know, as I think Guy quoted the Kalama Sutta where the Buddha said, don't believe anything. You know, don't believe anything because I said it, because a great elder has said it, because you've read it in a sacred text. He said, put it into practice. Put it into practice and see for yourself. So that's an amazing view of human life, isn't it? You can find out for yourself. You can really discern the truth for yourself. You can see so clearly for yourself. Give it a shot. Instead of saying, you know, follow me obediently and don't question anything and you'll be free. It's like, put it into practice, check it out. So that kind of questioning, that kind of doubting um, is considered a very wholesome process and it's not antithetical to faith. It really will move faith along. There's another kind of doubting which is different, um, which is more about, uh, maybe we'd call it cynicism. Instead of, you know, saying, hey, you know, maybe there's something here for me, I'm going to check it out. And going forward to check it out, whatever process or endeavor or whatever it is, instead of that, we step aside. We, we kind of pull over, you know, and we, we look from afar and usually in some kind of judgment, like couldn't be worth it or couldn't possibly produce anything. But how do we know, really, since we haven't taken any risks, we haven't come forward, we haven't tried it out. And so um, that more cold, uh, cynical, removed kind of doubt obviously is not that helpful because we're not letting a process speak to us or unfold. Um, we're not going to learn anything from it because we're not, we're not really honestly, sincerely checking it out. And so that kind of doubt is more called a kind of skeptical doubt. Um, and it's not that helpful. But the first kind is really, really crucial, you know, to feel empowered and to check things out for ourselves. And if we do that, then we begin to discern many things for ourselves about the nature of reality, the nature of our experience, about happiness, about suffering, about compassion, and so on. And so the bright faith will really evolve and deepen into the state uh, which is more known as verified faith. We're not so dependent on an external source, you know, a wonderful place, a wonderful person. We really feel from within um, that kind of knowing, which is its own kind of faith. And then as that deepens more, um, we really come to a place, sometimes it's called unwavering faith or abiding faith, uh, maybe unwavering faith is not that um, easy a translation to grasp because it can imply a kind of unwavering belief, like a rigidity and a separation or sectarianism. Whereas really abiding faith is more like we know something so deeply that we just live it. You know, we don't even consider it as a belief. It's just how we are. Um, and here too, I often take the Dalai Lama as an example. You know, in the quotation I used the other day when I was talking about him where he said, I've never met anyone I consider a stranger. You know, I've never met anyone I consider a stranger. So what is that faith in the power of compassion? 
And I've certainly never seen him in a situation where that feels like something um, that's an act or for the sake of the public or something he's more or less desperately reaching for in the face of tremendous boredom and irritation with somebody. You know, like, oh God, I can't believe I've talked to you again, but I am the Dalai Lama and everyone's watching, you know, so I better act like, you know, it doesn't feel that way. So as uh, one of my friends said when he was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize, they said, um, giving the Dalai Lama a Peace Prize is like giving Mother Nature an art award. Um, <coughs> But you know, that level of really kind of boundless compassion doesn't happen. Just, it doesn't fall from the sky. I mean, he's the one who practices three or four hours a day, you know, gets up at three in the morning and starts practicing before he begins the rest of his day, you know, as a, a leader and public figure. It's the cultivation, it's the deep knowing from within of where happiness lies, of where suffering lies, of what we see to be true. So much so that it's not separate from us as a belief anymore, but it's something that we live from. That's the sense of abiding faith. And of course, that's our ultimate goal, whether we call it faith or not. Uh, that's the ultimate goal of our practice. It's not to have some great experiences, you know, that are transitory, uh, but nonetheless, you know, we can brag about, uh, which is nice, you know, but it is the kind of transformation of our being so that qualities like loving kindness and compassion and sympathetic joy and equanimity are that home for us. They are that natural expression without, you know, all the kind of self-consciousness and over-determination and uh, lecturing ourselves and you know, forcing ourselves that we might ordinarily think of um, as a path. But instead, it's such a deep grounding and familiarity and process of awakening and returning to and returning to over and over again that these qualities really do become like our home. And so the expression of them is as natural as, you know, the Dalai Lama turning to greet somebody or um, the ability to have many, many, many disturbing thoughts, but have our hearts be very steady. You know, and I don't want to imply that this picture of perfection is around the corner, um, but the moments that we are genuinely there, and there are many, uh, they also count. You know, so many times uh, I see people really frustrated or despairing about their practice because they were in a kind of flow, let's say, of metta for a while, and then it went away. But of course it went away. You know, everything's changing all of the time. And the fact that it went away doesn't mean we can't return. The fact that we made a mistake doesn't mean we can't begin again. You know, the fact that we got hugely caught up in a reaction doesn't mean that that period of being caught up is lasting as long as it was two years ago. It doesn't mean that 
the return and the ability to kind of regroup and rebalance is, is inconsequential. And so really, you know, one of the most helpful things is to have that, uh, that great understanding of what an unfolding of a path actually looks like. You know, I used to think um, in my early practice, like, well, maybe it's kind of a struggle now, you know, but there will be that great breakthrough experience after which it's all smooth sailing, you know, and, you know, that beginning of my practice was quite a long time ago now. And I'd have to admit that I haven't had that great breakthrough experience after which it's all smooth sailing, but everything is different. And the ways that we change are moment to moment. You know, we are present, we have equanimity, we have wisdom, we have compassion for however many moments in a row, and we completely lose it, we will, but we can always begin again. And that really is, um, I think, both a, a truthful and very heartening picture of our path. Okay, so let's sit together for a couple of minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.